If you're new, my name is Matt. I'm uh, the teaching pastor here, and we started on a series that's called Ignorant. Uh, I've got some flack about that name. I think it's a great name. Ignorant isn't an, an insult. It's not like you're stupid or you're dumb. Ignorant just means you haven't learned about it, right? I am ignorant of brain surgery. Why? Not because I'm dumb, because I don't know how to do it, right? So it's, it's not, it's, hey, let's get educated. Let's get some information upon these topics. So we looked at our culture, kind of the cultural Marxism, the critical theory that's really seeped into the way that people relate to each other now and the, the division that's happening in our country. That was week one. We looked at homosexuality the week after that. Last week, we looked at transgender, that question, which is a massive question for us today. And today, we're going to look at Scripture, this book that we have. And this one's probably very personal to me. Uh, so, you know, our time together is more like a counseling session. That's what it is. Me getting healed of my own problems. Um, you guys get to be involved in it. The only difference between a counseling session and this one is I am not going to pay you, so you won't get any money out of this. Hopefully, you'll get understanding about the origins of this book. So my thing started out, I was in a church that I'm appreciative of, but it was a fundamentalist church, and it was a bit interesting because it was hyper-legalistic and hyper-charismatic. So the hyper-legalism came out like, I grew up and I, we weren't allowed to watch TV. Uh, we didn't celebrate holidays like Christmas and Thanksgiving and Easter because of their pagan roots. So it was hyper-legalistic, but on the other side, it was also um, like charismatic. I remember being in church and just people busting into speaking in tongues in the middle of a service. Like, so it, it's a strange dynamic that hyper-legalism and hyper-charismaticism, like that's a strange church. It'd be like a vegetarian that loves to hunt and fish. Like, why? I just love killing things, but I won't eat them. No, 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 that'd be wrong. Like, what? So it's strange. But I can remember as an eight-year-old being in that church, watching this guy named Floyd, he was preaching, and thinking to myself as an eight-year-old, one day I'll do that. One day I'll stand up in front of people and tell them everything they can't do. Yeah, can't wait, right? <laughs> so I, I kind of had that in me, but in that church there was this understanding that the Bible was God's word. And it's God's word, period. And so I came out of that church with this understanding that everybody believes this is God's word. The only difference is some people follow it and some people don't follow it. But there's no one that would say, this is not God's word. Well, fast forward, I leave here, I go to Oregon State University. I get on fire for the Lord there uh, my sophomore year, and um, this is the way I explained my mentality then. I had this shirt, and back then, Visa had this slogan, and it was, Visa, it's everywhere you want to be. Well, I had a shirt that had the Visa symbol on it, but it said, Jesus, he's everywhere you want to be, right? So I'm parading that shirt around. I am that annoying guy, right? That is me. So I am just unashamed this is the gospel, this is the good news, I am going to declare it, right? So junior year, I'm looking for a philosophy class to kind of round out my engineering degree, 
And I'm looking down and it said, philosophy 390, Jesus. And I'm like, whoa, I can go to college, get credit and learn about Jesus. This is the best day ever, heaven on earth right here. So I enroll in that class, I go to it. And within the first two weeks, when Professor Marcus Borg dropped his first F-bombs, things started to heat up. Like, maybe this isn't heaven. This might be hell on earth, in fact. Right? So um, Marcus Borg was part of this crew called the Jesus Seminar. You can Google them. There's a group of these hundred so-called scholars. And what they did is they got together every year. They would look at the words of Jesus, discuss it. And at the end of their discussion, they would vote on whether Jesus said those or not. So a red marble would go in if they believed Jesus said it, a pink if maybe he said it, a gray if they doubted he said it, and then a black one if there's no way he said it. So they're really trying to evaluate what is this, right? Mostly they said Jesus didn't say anything, except for it's better to give than to receive because they're a nonprofit organization. So that helps them. Right, So I'm in this class with him now. It's huge. It's on CNN. He's on Time Magazine. He's one of the leading figures in it. He's got all kinds of books. So I'm in this class, and I brought my Bible to class. Right? I'd have my Bible. We're going to learn about Jesus. So I'd have my Bible out. Like People have their textbooks. I had my Bible. And Professor Berg would say something about Jesus that I just knew the Bible had something else to say. So I'd like open up my Bible to a chapter and verse. I'd be like, excuse me, Professor? Um... It says here in Matthew 16 that Jesus said this. And he'd be like, <clears throat> well, Mr. Heverly, um, we know that Jesus didn't speak Greek. He actually spoke Aramaic. And um, I know Aramaic. Mr. Heverly, do you know Aramaic? Yeah, I totally know Aramaic. He's on my intramural basketball team. I love him. <laughs> right? Like, ugh. Okay, and we know that the words that are used there by Matthew didn't exist until the second century, so there's no way he could have said that. <clears throat> and I'd just sit there, and we'd go back and forth, back and forth, just debating these things. Um, and I just would be like, I'd there just sit there and just be like, I was so like, ah, frustrated, right? Because I didn't have answers, I didn't have anything to do, and I'd just stare at him in his like patent leather shoes and his argyle socks and his tweed coat and his corduroy pants. i just be like, oh, that's why I don't dress like that today. You can be thankful. And I didn't have an answer for him. And, 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 and so it just began to, over the course of just one semester, him just hammering at me, what happened was I lost faith in this book. I went for two years without opening the Bible, from being on fire for Jesus. Jesus, he's everywhere you want to be, to like, oh, I just can't open it. Because he put doubt in my mind about this book. And he did it like this. I'll give you one example, for instance. So in the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 2, there's this story about four men bringing a guy who was lame to Jesus. And in Mark, it says they couldn't get into the house because of the crowd. So they went up on the roof and they dug through the roof and they lowered the guy through the dugout roof, right? It would have been a mud with stick kind of roof. Well, Luke tells the same story. But Luke says this, they removed the tiles from the roof. So he's like, see, Matt, there's errors in the Bible. They can't be the same. And I'm reading that, I'm just like, oh, oh no. The Bible must not be right. 
So he was exploiting something that was in me, and it's this kind of fundamentalist understanding, and I think what happens is that same understanding gets exploited in people today. That young people head off to college and they take a Bible-lit class, and that same exploitation takes place, and there's also the loss of faith in Scripture. Or maybe you are right now heading off to college and you're going to take a Bible-lit class, and I want you to be prepared for it, okay? So here's the issue. There are three main ways of looking at the origins of this book that we hold. And how you view the origins of this book are very important, okay? So origin number one is what I call conservative. It's a church I grew up in. And the conservatives believe this. It is a 100% divine book. That when the authors of scripture were writing the Bible, they went into like a Holy Spirit trance. And they just kind of start writing and writing and writing. And then they almost wake up from their trance and they're like, whoa, look how good that is. I gotta read this. Like they almost don't know what they're writing. They're writing almost in a trance. It's the same idea like the Book of Mormon, if you know how it came about. There are these golden plates that descended from heaven And Joseph Smith found them and had magic glasses to transcribe out the Book of Mormon. It's that idea. Or the Quran. The Quran was Muhammad gets visited by Gabriel the angel and he memorizes verbatim the words of Gabriel and writes them into the Quran. It's kind of that idea, okay? So then the Gospels are to be this, it's almost like a transcript of the video of Jesus' life. Well, if it's a transcript, if one guy says Doug and the other guy says Tiles, that's a giant problem, right? So that's the way I viewed scripture. And then the Bible becomes in that understanding almost like this magic book that you can find like these little magic things in it, right? I'll give you an example. Has anyone heard of Ezekiel bread? Okay, Ezekiel bread comes from Ezekiel chapter four. And what Ezekiel is told is this. Hey, build a little scale model of Jerusalem. Lie on your side for 430 days and wage war against this little Lego scale model, okay? And while you're down like that, mix up this recipe, and it's the Ezekiel bread recipe, and then Cook it over dried human feces. Yeah, that's Ezekiel 4. Read it. It's awesome, right? So Ezekiel's just like, oh, yuck. He's like, oh, okay, hold on a second, God. I'll build the Lego model. I'll lie on my side for 430 days. No problem, man. I'll wage war against it. That'll be fun, you know? I'll mix up your bread, but I don't want to cook it over human feces. Could I use cow manure instead? And God's like, sure, no problem. Ezekiel needed a lesson in negotiation, didn't he? Because I would have started being like, okay, God, I'll do the Lego thing. I'll lie on my side. I'll make the bread. Could I get Chinese takeout though instead? Right? And then just see where we ended up, right? So people then are like, look, it's a magic formula for like super healthy bread. It's not at all. What God was telling Ezekiel to mix up there 
would have been siege rations. It's whatever is left after you've eaten everything else in the city. And it's, oh, this is the stuff we really hate to eat. Let's mix it together and try to make something out of it so we don't die. That's literally what it is. So people that are all caught up in it, I say, listen, if you really want it to be magical, you have to cook it over manure too, all right? That's the only way it works. It's that kind of idea. Like there's these like, um, I call them Easter eggs in the Bible. That you can find, you know what an Easter egg is? It's a secret little thing that if you look closely, you can find this Easter egg. So Noah put some, something on his, his boat to make it flow, right? So as bitumen, that must be oil. So let's go drill for oil in the Middle East. So that's how they found oil in the Middle East. Have you heard that? Not true, right? It's just now looking backwards on it. So it's, it's, it's those kind of like, hmm, ideas. And they're hyper literalists. And I've talked to them. And they will say this. There is a group of hyper-literalists. They exist in our community. I've had conversations with them where they say this, the earth is flat. Do you know why they say that? They'll tell you if you ask them because 67 times in the Bible, it says the sun rises or the sun sets. The Bible is clear. The sun moves and the earth does not. We're actually a flat disk held up by pillars You know, we don't care what science says. We're a flat disk and the sun goes around the earth. Talk with them, right? I mean, it's crazy. And then they say this, the moon produces its own light because of Genesis 1 where the sun is called the greater light and the moon is called the lesser light. It's not just explaining like one's stronger than the other. No, it's saying the moon produces its own light. They are hyper literalists, right? So you're just like, if you can keep it together long enough and not go postal on them, you ask them, okay, okay, fine. I'll turn them to Psalm 18, verse 8. Smoke comes out of God's nostrils. Is that literal? Like, is God in heaven smoking a stogie? What is this, right? So you have to start, like, probing them. Or I say this, aren't there genres in the Bible, like poetry and narrative and apocalyptic, and sometimes there's conversations in the Bible, and sometimes those conversations say say things about God that are not true, right? So you can't just read them literally. You have to know, actually, what they're saying about God is not true. And I turn them to Job 42.7. The majority of the book of Job is conversation. And God looks at the two buddies that did a lot of talking. What you said about me is not right. So you better look at the book of Job and find out when these two guys are speaking, they're actually in error, okay? So there's this kind of idea, and it's crazy. It'd be like Moses goes into some crazy like trance and then just just downloads the scripture directly through him onto the paper. Out of this kind of hyper-literalist, conservative, only a divine book comes, the King James Version only controversy. If you talk to people about that, they say this. God only needs one time to do it right. So when he translates the Bible from one language, Greek, Aramaic, Hebrew, into English, he only needed one time. And he got it perfect the first time. You heard that? I always tell them, well, the Geneva Bible is in English and it predates the King James Version by a number of years. So you should actually read the Geneva Bible. And people just believe, okay, God did it once, it must be perfect, and that's it. I had a group like that show up here a couple of months ago. 
And they came up to me, they're like, why are you doing, why are you in the ESV version? Why are you using that? Don't you know what's wrong? How can you use that? The King James is the right version. So I told them, hey, if you want to read the King James version, do it. I got no problem with that. It's a great translation. But I said this, it's missing out on the most important biblical discovery in history. They're called the Dead Sea Scrolls, 1948. It has transformed the way we understand the Old Testament. And there are places that we know the King James got it wrong and we've corrected. And I showed them one in Deuteronomy that makes total sense of a chapter that before we're like, ah, that doesn't make sense. Dead Sea Scrolls, oh, that's what God's saying, right? It's helpful. Instead of them being like, oh, okay, thank you for exposing that and showing me that, guess what they did? Well, you use leaven in your communion. I'm like, really? Really, we're going to do that? Like, yeah, leaven is sin. I said, no, uh, leaven is yeast. Sin is like murder. Do you need a demonstration? I didn't say that last little, I didn't. I felt like it, but I didn't, right? And it just comes out of this whole idea that it's like magic, it's magic. Trances and overpowered by the Holy Spirit and you don't even know what you wrote till you woke up. So it's a purely divine book. That's view number one, the conservative, hyper-literalist view, view number one. There's view number two, critical view of scripture. This is what I got introduced to in college. I didn't know it before this. And what the critical view says is this, it's a pure human book. So this is your Marcus Borgs, this is your National Geographic, this is your uh, History Channel, this is Da Vinci Code by Dan Brown. All those have this idea that the Bible is put together purely by men who are attempting to invent a religion that they can use then to control people and then to make money off them, right? So that's this whole kind of thing. When people say that, I always ask them, all right, so the Bible was made by man to control people, to get them to become converts, to come into your church, and then to get money out of them. All right, if that's true, why is there the book of Job in there? How would that help their cause? Job, who God calls the most righteous man on earth, the best dude, he's doing it better than anyone else, and what happens to him? He loses everything. He loses his kids, they're killed. He loses his homes. He loses his crops. He loses his flocks and his herds. He loses his health. He loses everything but his wife, who is a bummer, right? <laughs> Satan's like, yeah, I'm not taking her. She's actually on my team. Yeah. <laughs> Keep her there. She's helpful, man. <laughs> right? That does not, so I just say, no way. And they say, so what these guys did is they left out certain books that didn't help them, Right? So we have these discoveries like of the Gospel of Thomas or the Shepherd of Hamas, whatever it is. So you got these books like, well, why aren't they in the Bible? Because those original dudes didn't want them in there. No. Do you know why we have the shape of Scripture the way it is, the 27 books we have? I'll tell you why. All of those books went viral, literally. You had 100 million views day one. It was the early church began to read this and they're like, this is right. And they copied it over and over and over and over and over again. And thousands and thousands of copies were made. And so that's why we still have them today. That's why these other gospels are lost because there was like one copy and that's it. Because everyone knew, yeah, that, that, that wasn't viral. 
We have the shape of the canon because those books resonated with the early church and they copied them over and over and over and over again. Okay? But number two just says pure human book. Pure divine book, pure human book. I think there's a third one. And the third one is what I call collaboration. That this book that you and I hold, it's like the incarnation. It's 100% God, exactly what God wanted. But it's also 100% man. It's a collaboration. And I think if you read the story of the Bible, what you see is God's always wanting to collaborate with us, right? Genesis 1 creation of Adam and Eve as image bearers is God saying this, like I rule the cosmos, you guys rule earth. As I rule in grace and truth and mercy and kindness and holiness, you do the same thing here down on earth. You rule down here. It's it's a collaboration. And so God did the same thing. He used people with their crazy personalities like Ezekiel, lay on your side, Right? See these crazy things in the, in the wind? You know, personality. He used their culture. He used their times. He used their language to get precisely what he wanted. It's a human, divine collaboration to get God exactly the books in the way that he wanted them to be. I'm going to try to prove that to you from the Bible, okay? So let me ask you a question. What is the very first thing God said to write down that became the Bible we use today? Was it Genesis 1? Like God just, you start in the beginning. Sounds like a great way to start a book, right? Is that the first thing? No. Turn with me to Exodus 17. Here's the very first thing God says. Here's how we're starting the book. It's going to be a bestseller. Here's how we're starting it. You have this group called the Amalekites. They are chasing after the children of Israel after they've been set free and picking off the weak in the back. And God finally says, I've had enough of that. And there's this battle. And Moses is up on this hill. Every time he raises his staff, they win. Every time he gets tired, they start to lose. So two guys come next to him, Aaron and Hur, and they raise up his arms and they win the battle. And it's brilliant. So God says this. Verse 14, then Yahweh said to Moses, write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under the heaven. There's the first thing ever written down that will become the Bible that you and I hold. And what is it? It's a story of God rescuing his people. That's the very first thing God wants written down. I think that's important. It's a story of him rescuing his people. Not a poem, not in the beginning, not apocalyptic. It's a story. Why would God have a story as the first thing? Because really that's what this book is. This book, I call it a biography of earth, of God and humans. It's a story. 
And we should not fall into the enlightenment trap that says this, the only way to transfer information is through science. We are a science society. We believe science is the only way to transfer truth. Is that right? No way. Stories are so much better at transferring truth. We actually remember them better and we're shaped better by story. I'll try to prove it. Who here could go back to high school and pass a chemistry test? Yeah, three of you. That's it. All right? I couldn't. I took college chemistry, right? But who here remembers Daniel Boone in his coonskin cap and coming west? Why? Oh, we love that story. Or who here could go back to high school and, and, and pass a physics class? Ugh. But who here remembers Neil Armstrong stepping on the moon, right? We all remember that. Why? Because it's his story. We went out and made rocket ships out of cardboard because we wanted to emulate. The story. stories are so powerful. God knows that. So he says, record this true story because I want it to shape my people. I want them to hear this story. I want them to be shaped by it. Is this the first time God has rescued his people? No. You have the greatest rescue, Pharaoh, killing all the babies, enslaving the people, and God comes down with 10 plagues and rescues his people out of Egypt. There is the huge rescue. How were they to remember that rescue? By eating a meal, by sitting down once a year, eating what's called the Passover meal and retelling the story of God's rescue for them, right? I think those are really important points. So the first story or the first thing that's ever written down is this story of God's rescue. What's the second thing written down? It's called the 10 words, literally in the Hebrew. We call it the 10 commandments today. God writes down the 10 commandments. Now, what are the 10 commandments? It's a covenant. God is saying, listen, if we are gonna get, get along, and if you're gonna get along with your neighbor, here's the way it works. It's a covenant. So God says, here's the 10 ways that you and I get together, and here's the ways that you as other people get together, get along, right? And then God adds 52 later, and then a total of 613. So it's God like giving the 10 commandments is easing them into this covenant. Yeah, we'll start with 10, but there's gonna be a whole bunch more coming, right? So there you start to see like there's a process. It's first there's this story, then there's these 10 commandments and a bunch more are written down as well. And it's almost like Moses puts them in a file, all right, for later reference. He starts to file away 10 commandments. File away these stories as he puts them together. As the narrative goes forward, he starts to do that, all right? And what you see later is this. The Torah, which is the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, have in them these little notes at times. And it'll be like, hey, and this city still exists to this day. Or, and this city used to be called this, but it's called this now, right? It's like somebody added in clarification, Editorial notes. I'll show you one of them. Look forward to Deuteronomy 34. Verse 8 says, Then the days of weeping and mourning for Moses were ended. He's dead. But there's still more of the book. Verse 10. And there was not, and there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom Yahweh knew face to face. 
None like him for all the signs and the wonders that Yahweh sent him to do in the land of Egypt to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land. And for all the mighty power and all the great deeds of terror that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. It's this that tore me up because of my background. Because I wanted Moses to go into like a three-day trance, write Genesis to Deuteronomy in one setting, and then almost to like wake up and read these words about himself and be like, bro, I am awesome. Look how good I am. I didn't even know that. Right? And then when you start seeing, no, he, he didn't write those. Somebody else compiling this, put those in, and it's actually stitching Deuteronomy to Joshua. It's putting the two. It's, it's a caption that's like, okay, we're launching into the next guy. Right? Those tore me up. It took the fun out of my fundamentalism is what it did. So I had to start processing this, right? So there's another thing that the Bible tells us it did. Flip forward to Jeremiah. So in Jeremiah 36, we're way into the book of Jeremiah. Look what God says, Jeremiah 36, verse one. In the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, this word came to Jeremiah from Yahweh. Take a scroll And write on it all the words that I've spoken to you against Israel and Judah and all the nations from the day I spoke to you from the days of Josiah until today. If you do the math, this is 25 years. So after over the past 25 years, Jeremiah, you've been preaching, you've been prophetic, you've been poetic. Take all that material over 25 years and compile it into a book, a scroll. That's a massive undertaking. I'm 14 years into Edgewater. I have 100,000 pages of notes, of sermons and stuff, right? Imagine trying to compile all that into a 20, 30-page book. That's insane, right? So Jeremiah's just like, oh, no. So what does he do? Verse 4. Then Jeremiah called Baruch, the son of Neriah, And Baruch wrote on a scroll at the dictation of Jeremiah all the words of Yahweh that he had spoken to him. He phones a friend. Bro, this is giant. Come here. Help me. So the two of them together compile this scroll, right? Jeremiah is out with the king. The king does not like him. So Baruch takes the scroll, heads down, and begins to read the scroll to the king. The king does not like what was written in there. So he begins to just take a knife and he cuts off the part of the scroll that was finished and throws it into a fire until he had cut every piece off that scroll and thrown the entire thing into the fire. And Baruch's just watching this going, we gotta do that again. Oh my goodness, this is so much work, right? So here's what happens, verse 32. Then Jeremiah took another scroll. And gave it to Baruch the scribe, the son of Neriah, who wrote on it at the dictation of Jeremiah all the words of the scroll that Jehoiakim, king of Judah, had burned in the fire. And many similar words were added to them. It's a second edition. That this went through an iteration, if you would. And God is okay with that. Edition one, burned. 
The second edition is going to even be better, that we're going to add even more words to it. And the Bible seems fine with that. Here's what's really amazing. Um, a couple of decades ago, they found this seal that dated to about 580 BC when Jeremiah was written. And that seal is the seal of Baruch. It's literally Baruch, the son of Neriah. That this is literally the seal of the guy that wrote the scroll of Jeremiah. And if you look at the very top, there's these little ridges. It's his fingerprint. How cool is that? It's amazing to me. In 250 years of archaeology, what we have found is this. This is the most reliable document. It's brilliant. It's like nothing else. Right? There's always this, well, the Hittites don't exist, so the Bible's wrong. And they find the Hittites. Right? Or Jericho didn't exist like that, so the Bible's wrong. And then they discover Jericho. And they discover Jericho, unlike most cities where the walls are pushed in from an invading force, the walls fell out because it was a different thing that happened there. And what they found that amazed them that they'd never found before was this. All this food underneath the rubble. Because normally what you do is you would siege a city and starve them out. And they would get down to prison rations like Ezekiel. And then they'd run out of food and they'd finally give up. But there was tons and tons of food in Jericho. Because it was defeated a whole different way. Just like the Bible. Like archaeology just continued to show this is a brilliant book. All right? So I've got this. And for me, it was a giant struggle because of my background, the way I believe the Bible, that it's just this pure divine download. What you actually see is it's collaboration, that God used Moses. Write these stories down. File them away. Keep them. Then you got someone who kind of sews it together with the story of Joshua. you got Jeremiah using multiple editions. I wanted the golden plates in a trance thing, but that's not the way it is, okay? So here's what helped me. This is the illustration that helped me. And it was this. A couple of weeks ago, we went to an A Jesus Church Network uh, thing at Lake Tahoe. It was a pastor's conference. And there was a bunch of groups there at this camp. And I sat down with my wife at this table with these three older ladies there. And we started talking with them. And I said, what are you guys doing here? And they said, oh, we're quilting. I'm like, you're quilting? Oh, well, that's cool. Let's go see your quilt. So we went next door. And this lady showed me her quilt. And she's like, this little square right here was made by my grandma. And this little square right here was made by my great aunt. And then I made this one and this one. And I'm putting them all together and sewing them into this quilt. Okay? Who makes the quilt? Who gets credit for the quilt? Is it great grandma? Great aunt? The lady we met? Yes. Right? All of them do. Right? So it's almost like that. Like There are these stories that Moses files away, right? He writes them down, Genesis account, this stuff. And then there's someone that's like, hey, let's quilt this together into the book of Joshua, into the book of Judges. Let, let's make something out of this, the canon in the shape that it's supposed to be shaped. So, okay. Why is that a problem? Well, I don't think it should be a problem. It's a problem because I didn't believe in the collaboration, that God collaborates. Right? So I, I have this kind of thing, and I'll just lay it out for you. Here's what I think. And, and these are the way I think we have the origins of Scripture. So number one, there are quilters. There's people that like sewed together, like, okay, here's this information, let's sew it together. 
And you see that in Deuteronomy 34. I think number two, there are shapers. Like Luke. Luke is choosing to choreograph the account of Jesus to make sense to his buddy Theophilus who lives in a very different culture. So when he comes to the account of them digging through this roof, he's like, man, that will make no sense to my buddy up there because it's all tile roofs. No problem, I'll just change the roofing material. Why is that a problem? Don't we do that all the time with language? Sure we do, especially when we're going into a different culture. I'll give you the best example I have. I went to Vanuatu as a missionary, and in Vanuatu, they have a simple thing there. You are a boy until you get married. There are 40-year-old boys and 19-year-old men, because it's just all based on did you get married or not. So it's a huge deal there. So I get there, we're, we're starting to know each other a little bit, and they ask me, Matt, are you married? I said, no, I'm not married, but I'm engaged. I have a fiance. And they're like, what's engaged? What's a fiance, right? I'm trying to explain like what it is. And they're just like, that, no, no, we don't understand that at all. What are you talking about, right? So I'm like, really? Like, yeah, come on. This is not pretend. I don't have a pretend girlfriend at home. I really have one, right? So we're going through this process. And finally, this guy's like, oh, I know what you did. You blocked a woman. I'm like, well, what does that mean? What does it mean to block a woman? He goes, well, here's what we do in Vanuatu. When we see a woman in our village that we like, we block her. And then we leave and we go out into the world stage and we make our money, our fortune, and then we come back to our village, we build a hut, and then we take her as our wife. We block women. That's what we do. I'm like, okay, that's what I did. Yeah, I'll be that. No problem. (laughs) Right? And then they're like, Dom and Josh, who are my buddies over there, my same age, they're like, did you guys block a woman? And they're like, no, we didn't. And they looked at me and they go, mm. and this is Bishlam. They said, oh, Matt, Hemi Save good. You know what that means? Matt, he is a stud. <laughs> Literally. I'm like, so from that point on, wherever I went, when people would ask me, hey, do you have, are you married? I'm like, no, I blocked a woman. Oh, Hemi Save good. All right, all right. Right? Now, if my wife would have heard that, she'd be like, what? You did not block me, young man, right? But I'm in a culture that you know this is the way I have to try to explain what has happened, right? That's, we do that all the time. Shapers. And God got exactly what he wanted, the precise wording he wanted from Luke. Collaboration, right? So there's quilters. There's shapers. There are genres, Right? There's genres to the Bible. So if you look at Genesis 1, and if you look at Psalm 104, both of them are the creation account, but they're vastly different. One is like, hey, just kind of systematic. Psalm is just poem and majestic, and the mountains thrust up through, you know, like just you're like, oh, caught up in the moment. It's brilliant. It's beautiful, okay? So there's genres, and you have to know In a genre, what's the purpose of this? What is the goal of this? So if you're going to cook food, would you use a chemistry book to cook food? That's what you're doing, right? Combine the sodium chloride with the bicarbonate soda with a little H2O, heat it until there's a reaction. But you don't do that, why? Because you want people to eat your food, that's why. So you use the joy of cooking. 
Well, Genesis has a purpose. It was written for, don't force Genesis to cook your food. Figure out what's the purpose of this book. Why was it written to a bunch of mud brick baking slaves in 1500 BC? What's the purpose? And then you can figure out what it's trying to say. What's the genre? What's it doing here? The Bible's phenomenological. That means this. People described what they saw. So they saw the sunrise. So guess what they said? The sun rises. We do that today, don't we? No one is like, look at that brilliant earth rotation. That is awesome, man. That's the most brilliant earth rotation I have ever seen in my life. It just gets so pedantic. I just want to like strangle people. Like, are you kidding? This is language. This is the way we speak. God is okay with that. He didn't correct them. Be like, no, actually, the earth rotates. They'd be like, what are you talking about, right? God didn't do that. It's phenomenological. And we have to accept that's how language works. It's always worked that way. It has dark sayings. So in Proverbs 1 verse 6, it says this, there's hiddah. There's dark sayings in scripture. The hadas are this. They're the stuff that you're just like, I don't know why the Bible says that. That's why the job of a Bible student is 2 Timothy 2.15. Study to show yourself approved unto God. A workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. The Bible, to me, I feel like I've just scratched the surface and I've been at it for two decades. Like, oh my goodness, this, there are some dark sayings in this. And so when I come to a dark saying, a hadah, this is what I do now. The problem is not the Bible. The problem is me. I see through a glass dimly. I don't know enough yet. I need more information. I needed to be a detective and research and look and study. And the answers that I find when I do that, oh, they're brilliant. They're brilliant then. The problem's not the Bible. The problem's me, right? The Bible accommodates people. This is what I mean. God meets people where they are at in Scripture to bring them to himself. Very often, we want the Bible to look like the 21st century Western American civilization we live in. Like, if it's not this way exactly, then what's wrong with the Bible? Well, God was meeting people in their brokenness, in their culture, in their chaos to keep wooing them to somewhere better. So we can't force it to be that way. I'll prove it to you. Read Matthew chapter 19, where Jesus is discussing divorce and this. And Jesus says, listen, divorce is not God's plan. It was one man, one woman, one life. And they shoot back at Jesus, well... Why does the law, why does Moses say you can get divorced? Jesus' answer, because of your hard hearts. He's accommodating your sinful, hard hearts. That's what God does. I'll tell you, I'm so glad God doesn't require us to be something before he meets us. That he invites us in just as we are and then moves us toward something better, moves us toward his son. Which brings me to my last point. There's one purpose to Scripture. Jesus in Luke 24 begins to talk to these two disciples and he says this. He goes through all of Moses, the Torah, and the prophets and shows how scripture drives to him. 
The Exodus story is about Jesus, the ultimate rescue from the real Pharaoh called Satan. The, the stories about Joseph going down before he comes up, they're all pointing to Jesus. The ability to love God and love our neighbor, the Ten Commandments, are only found by loving Jesus. That every map, every road in the Old Testament is like a road on a map that has one destination and it's driving us to Jesus. Did Jesus write anything down? Mm -mm. What's the one thing we are to do to remember him today? Share a meal, right? So interesting. And then he grabs his disciples. He brings them to him in Matthew 28. He says this, all authority has been given to me. The reason why the Bible is authoritative is because of Jesus. His life, death, and resurrection prove this book. All authority has been given to me. And then he deputizes his disciples who then go and tell the story. They write Matthew and Mark and Luke and John and Acts and Romans and Revelation, the end. It's Jesus collaborating now, just like God has done throughout all history. Let me collaborate with you. 100% me, 100% you. I'll get exactly the book I want in this process. So where does that bring us to today? We engage in the same way. Jesus is still looking for kingdom partners that we study the scripture and God's spirit hovers over me, my chaos, my wreckage, my brokenness, and he straightens me out. And then the Bible inspires me to go back into my city of Grant's past and to be a kingdom builder. Let's collaborate together, Jesus. Let's see your kingdom come and your will being done here today. And then we eat a meal, remembering Jesus, that he is the ultimate rescuer that this world is driven toward him, that the Bible is driven toward him. And we eat this meal, we take the body, we take the cup, and we're reminded we've been rescued. We've been cleansed. Sin, Satan, death, they've all been dealt the death blow. They're writhing right now, waiting for the return of our king. And we remember that. And then we go back into our homes and back into wherever we're at, trusting the king is with us, and he'll use us. To me, that's the Bible. And I'll tell you what, I love the Bible way more today than I ever have in my life. That it has more power and it impacts me more with this understanding than it ever did before. Because I know now, God, you still want to collaborate with me. You want to use me. I want to be shaped by this book to be better used by you. It's brilliant, and it's helped me. I hope it helps you. So Jesus, today, I pray for young people who have taken a class like myself and now struggle with understanding what this book is. I pray that today may have given them a little bit of clarity. I pray for us. May we know that you have invited every single one of us in to collaborate with you. That we are supposed to be image bearers of you in our home, 
at our workplace in Grant's past. Taking the chaos of our world and bringing order to it, just like you've done for us. Meeting people where they are at to bring them to you. And may scripture shape us to have those kind of hearts, I ask. And I pray this in your name. Amen.